If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome back to our special podcast series, delving into everything you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask about some of history's biggest subjects. Today, it's the English Reformation. To find out more, our editor Rob Attar spoke to historian Dermot McCulloch. Today, I'm really pleased to be in the company of Dermot McCulloch, who is Emeritus Professor of the History of the Church at the University of Oxford, and he's one of the world's leading experts on the Reformation. He's the author of numerous books, including Reformation, Europe's House Divided. And a couple of years ago, he published a major biography of Thomas Cromwell, who, of course, is one of the key architects of the English Reformation. So today we're going to be putting questions to him that have come from popular Google search terms, as well as several that you've submitted on our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. So let's begin with a pretty uh, crucial one from Google, which is, what was the English Reformation? And I, I guess here it'll be helpful to explain how this relates to the wider European Reformation. Yes, Rob, that really is the whole answer, because the English Reformation was the outwash of something much bigger, which started in northern Germany in 1517 with Martin Luther and spread out from there to disrupt in various ways all of mainland Europe and then these islands. So if you're thinking about the English Reformation, you simply cannot ignore the other Reformations. And they went in waves. You've got a first wave from Luther 
And then uh, very quickly, another wave from another bit of Europe, Switzerland, and then successive waves, which created different sorts of Protestantisms. So there's a Lutheran Protestantism. There's what uh, you could label uh, a Reformed Protestantism with a capital R. Uh, Some people would call it Calvinism, but that's just not good enough. And so the English Reformation, you have to fit into those categories of Luther coming first, then the Swiss, then other things. And then you've got the big variable in England of the Tudor monarchy. And the Tudor monarchy was immensely insecure. They were always preoccupied with their succession, partly to start with because they hadn't got a very good claim to the throne. Later on, because they had problems in reproducing. And so in the end, you get to three children of King Henry VIII, And each of them had a different take on Reformation. Henry VIII had his distinct one. Then his little boy son, uh, Edward VI, had another take. Mary, absolutely the opposite, Catholic in her uh, attempt to restore the old church. And then finally Elizabeth, who's just really odd. So you've got these Reformations in England, which are outwashes of something. And so coming on then to the causes of the English Reformation... And this is an amalgamation of a few Google search questions. When and why did the English Reformation start and who started it? Two different answers to that. There is a groundswell from below in England of dissatisfaction with the old church. And that went back to the 14th century, something distinctively English, a movement called Lollardy. So even before Martin Luther was um, a twinkle in his father's eye, there is a distinctive English undertow of dissent from the old church. That met Martin Luther's rebellion in the 1520s. And then you have the extraordinary uh, fact of Henry VIII and uh, his dissatisfaction with his long-standing wife, Catherine of Aragon. And so Henry's attempt to find the ideal wife and create the ideal heir to the throne got mixed up with this other wider story. And after that, there's always an official reformation going alongside an unofficial reformation in England. And the the fascination of the English reformation is, is trying to sort them out and see how they related to each other. Now, we've had a couple of people on social media have been asking about Anne Boleyn's role in the reformation. We had, uh, first of all, Jen M. Kerry on Instagram asked, would the English Reformation have happened if there'd been no love affair with Anne Boleyn? And clearly that's Henry VIII's love affair with Anne Boleyn. Yes, uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, An English Reformation would have happened, but not the very odd, tangled one which happened under Henry VIII. Uh, At the heart of Henry VIII's problems was his uh, attempt to find an heir, but also the fact that he absolutely fell passionately in love with the young lady at court, Anne Boleyn. Bullen, uh, I'm going to say Bullen, actually, because I think that's how they would have pronounced it. So in the later 1520s, you, you've got this uh, extraordinary attempt to get out of a marriage to Catherine of Aragon and create a marriage to Anne Bullen, who uh, rather interestingly could have stayed a mistress but did not want to. She was determined to be queen. So that would take an enormous amount of diplomacy. Uh, The only person who could really untangle it in the 1520s was the Pope. And the Pope, for very good reasons, didn't want to. The most powerful man in Europe was the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and he was the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. And he simply 
put pressure on the Pope to stop this. So you've got an absolutely impossible situation, which Henry, with his enormous ego, solved, in inverted commas, by breaking his loyalty to the Pope and declaring that he, Henry, could make a decision on his marriage uh, and the fact that actually his marriage to Catherine of Aragon had never happened. So in that sense, Anne Boleyn is really crucial to the way the official Reformation in England started. Now, we've got another question on Anne Boleyn that looks a bit more about her own personal religious beliefs and influence, and that is from Philippa Vincent Connolly on Facebook. Was Anne Boleyn a catalyst for the English Reformation, or is too much made of her influence on religious reform? Oh, she was a catalyst, no question, because the distinctive thing about her and her brother George was that they were already enthusiasts for reform in the church. Uh, Anne had had time in France, French court, and there she would have met people already interested in reform before Luther, frankly, or independently from Luther. So she had a, a real enthusiasm for reform, which you wouldn't expect in a royal mistress. Uh, and uh, I emphasise her brother, George, is also important. Uh, they were both enthusiastic for reform. And so she did influence Henry VIII, particularly once she was queen, because she could influence who became bishops in his new Church of England as, as vacancies happened. Uh, on the Episcopal bench, she could get her protégés in. For instance, the great Protestant preacher, Hugh Latimer, uh, very much a protégé of hers. So is Archbishop Cranmer, who, who'd been chaplain to her family. And so there's something really important about Anne Bullen. Eric Ives wrote a brilliant biography of her, uh, which sums up the case very well indeed. And then moving on to Henry himself, uh, Daniel Farr on Facebook asked, was Henry a willing participant or just a pawn during the English Reformation? He was both. He fancied himself as a reformer, but not really a Protestant reformer. You could never, ever say that Henry VIII was a Protestant. But he could look to that great reforming influence in Europe in the early 16th century, Desiderius Erasmus. Henry was a huge fan of Erasmus and, and sort of fancied himself as a mini Erasmus, uh, the perfect reforming prince. So you've got that thought in his mind. But this is, this is not really Protestantism. It's his own agenda. And you can never precisely say where he's going to jump on that. So willing participant, a participant, yes. But pawn. Now, this is where it becomes interesting, because uh, two key players he he put into power for his own reasons were uh, Archbishop Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, a former Cambridge Don, who, to everyone's surprise, he made Archbishop of Canterbury, and Thomas Cromwell, who he chose to be a royal minister at the beginning of the 1530s, I think out of recognition of his sheer competence. Cromwell had been Cardinal Wolsey's employee for a very specific purpose, which was to look after Cardinal Wolsey's uh, design for his tomb and all the arrangements which went round the tomb. And Henry VIII, when he uh, effectively destroyed Cardinal Wolsey, inherited Cromwell and inherited the tomb. So the tomb which Cromwell had, had been masterminding for the cardinal was now going to be the king's tomb. And I think that's where Cromwell came in. But very quickly, Henry VIII recognised talent. Now, Cromwell had 
a, a, a huge enthusiasm for the Reformation. And so he had his own agenda. And very often he could bend Henry VIII to it. So in that sense, yes, Henry is uh, a pawn in the hands of Cromwell from time to time, very unpredictably. And then coming on again, well, sticking with Cromwell, in fact, we had a question from Caroline Angus, also on Facebook, who wanted to know, why does Cromwell not get the credit he deserves for all he did to bring the Reformation to England or for the sheer volume of work he did during an incredibly turbulent decade? Well, I think he's a Marmite person. Uh, You love him or you hate him. And in the 16th century, Protestants loved him, turned him into a hero. Catholics detested him. And those broadly are the lines through into the 19th century. In the 20th century, uh, his reputation grew in some circles, partly thanks to my old doctoral supervisor, Geoffrey Elton. In other ways, his reputation took a real bashing from the work of Robert Bolt, Uh, which, of course, became a great film in which the hero is Thomas Moore because it's a man for all seasons. And inevitably, Cromwell would come off worst in in that uh, portrait. Bolt wasn't really completely unfair to Cromwell, but you you end up thinking Thomas Moore is the good guy, Thomas Cromwell is the bad guy. Now things have gone the other way. Uh, I'm I'm not going to take any credit for this. It's Hilary Mantel's achievement with her brilliant novels. Uh, So the reputation fascinatingly has swayed over the centuries between great guy and very, very bad guy. And so now one of the, again, the key questions on this topic, and this comes from Google, and the question is, what were the effects of the English Reformation? To transform England, to remove it from a thousand years of relationship with Rome towards another international identity which is that of international Protestantism, the Protestantism of Northern Europe, Scandinavia, of Luther, of Calvin, of Zwingli. And that's as much an international identity as the old Catholic one, but totally different. And it meant that England became a Protestant country, one of the most important, powerful Protestant countries in the end. And really that was so until my boyhood in the 1950s. England remained... Uh, its central identity was Protestants. Things have changed, uh, but that's how things were. That That's a really fundamental part of English identity and its relationship with the other parts of what we often call the British Isles, with Scotland, an independent kingdom, up to uh, the end of the 17th century. And Scotland, too, became a Protestant kingdom, and the relationship between them was foundational for the United Kingdom. And then you've got the other island, Ireland, the Reformation, crucial there, too. So you can hardly exaggerate the effect of the English Reformation on these islands. And actually, you, you just brought on Ireland, and we did have a question about that, which came in from Niall Smiley Oman on Facebook. And he wanted to know, would it be fair to say that the Reformation didn't spread to Ireland other than the plantations of the 17th century because it was viewed as foreign and English? And was there any attempt to spread it through the Irish language? Yeah, that's that's a very fair question. Uh, It didn't spread, not because people thought it foreign, but because people thought it English. Uh, And the English played an extraordinarily bad hand in uh, Ireland in the 16th century. There had been a long-standing relationship, 400 years of relationship between the Kingdom of England and the island of Ireland. Uh, But it had been usefully untidy up to the time of Cardinal Wolsey, 
who decided to turn it into something much more intimate. And then Thomas Cromwell simply took his policy on, which meant that from the 1520s, England became what would later be thought of as a colonial power. Now, that wouldn't necessarily mean that Ireland's future would be Catholic, because in the time of Queen Mary... Uh, who was, of course, uh, back to being a Roman Catholic, those colonising efforts were formalised. They really became a thoroughgoing policy of uh, imposing an English identity and English people and English ownership on Ireland. And one of the reasons for that was that her husband was King Philip of Spain. And the Spaniards had been doing the same thing in the New World. And the first two samples of this in Ireland were what, uh, until... 1921, were called Kings and Queens County, the counties of Leash and Offaly. Uh, and they're named after Philip and Mary. Now, you see, the, the, the what if in that is if Mary had been on the throne for 45 years, like her sister Elizabeth was after her, what would have happened to Ireland? I think it would have become Protestant. It wasn't the foreignness of Protestantism, it was the Englishness. And in reaction to English colonial enterprise, the Irish would have become Protestant just as the Dutch became Protestant in reaction to the Spanish rule there. So the what if is really important. Uh, but you have to say that the story is, is uh, an indictment of English stupidity, ineptitude and selfishness in Ireland and those consequences are still with us. And a question from Google that I know there's been a lot of scholarly debate on over the decades. How popular was the English Reformation? It became popular. It wasn't popular to start with. Um, the Lollards, uh, that early dissenting body, were, were a very small minority of the population in very specific places, mostly the great river valleys of southern England uh, and up to East Anglia. They're the basis for a popular reformation, but the, that wasn't enough. You needed the official reformation to uh, add its pennyworth, which is more than a pennyworth. It, it's a huge input of propaganda from the pulpit in particular, but also to encourage activist Protestantism. So you could say that by the end of the 16th century, thanks to all that, and also thanks to the negative efforts of Queen Mary in burning Protestants, English identity had become decisively Protestant and there was a popular Protestantism. Now, the proof of that is the English Civil War of the 1640s. Now, that war in England, at least, and Scotland was about the future shape and identity of Protestantism. It was not a civil war between Protestants and Catholics, though Catholics tended to be on the king's side. Uh, it was about what shape the church in England should be. And that's why English people killed each other in the 1640s. That's a mark, paradoxically, of the popularity of the Protestant Reformation in England. And related to that, we had someone just called William on Twitter who asked, how much were ordinary people impacted by the Reformation? Or did they just get on with their lives and adapt to the changes around them without much objection? They haven't left much to us in writing. The answer is that clearly their lives were utterly transformed, bit by bit, utterly transformed. And the bit by bit is important because that's one of the reasons why not all of them rose up in fury against the Reformation. Now, some did. There were serious rebellions, particularly 
in northern England in 1536, the Pilgrimage of Grace. That was really, really serious. Uh, it was a, a shout of fury uh, in northern England against what Henry VIII was doing and very precisely about the Reformation aspects of what he was doing, the closure of the monasteries in particular, and against the great minister Thomas Cromwell. And and the same was true in 1549. There were huge explosions of fury in Western England against the reforming changes, Reformation changes. But interestingly, by that stage, in the same year, 1549, there were risings in lowland Eastern England, which were Protestant in flavour in which the crowds who gathered to express their fury against the government used the Protestant liturgy. And the government appealed to them as fellow Protestants. So that's a mark of the way in which popular opinion was changing on on a regional basis. Protestantism was exciting. It gave you something new in place of what you were losing. It gave you uh, a sense of liberation, in yourself, uh, a way of approaching God. It gave you a sense that the the kingdom of England was God's chosen place, just like Israel had been of old. And it gave you an enemy. It gave you Roman Catholics as an enemy because they're foreign. Uh, they are now a threat to what is becoming a new English way of life. So it's a, it's a complex picture. It's a regional picture and it's a gradual shift. Uh, but in the end, um, Yes, this Reformation does have a popular base to it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Protestants are a bit sort of embarrassed about losing Our Lady. They wanted to get rid of the cult, obviously, and the statues had to go, but they couldn't get rid of her because she is the mother of Jesus. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The next question is one I think a lot of people might be wondering. Nick Mayhew-Smith on Twitter says... 
I've always been interested in why people differentiate between the English Reformation and the dissolution of the monasteries. Could one have happened without the other? Well, yes, the dissolution of the monasteries could have happened without the Reformation. Uh, And there were places in Europe in the 1520s and 30s where what you might call Catholic monarchs, with inverted commas, were dissolving monasteries. And Catholic monarchs went on dissolving monasteries because people have always dissolved monasteries. Monastic life always needs reform. And one way of doing that is to get rid of monasteries which don't match up. But it has to be said that Protestantism really doesn't have much place for monastic life. There were continuing Lutheran monasteries in Germany, but that simply wasn't the case in these islands. Reformation meant getting rid of the old superstition, the old cheat, which was the Pope's religion. And and that was very much focused on monasteries. And and Henry VIII picked up that theme. Uh, Thomas Cromwell probably, in the end, went for the dissolution of all monasteries on ideological grounds. Henry VIII went for it because of money. He was building the most expensive defensive system that England had known and would know up to the 19th century, and it cost an absolute fortune. And although uh, in the late 1530s, I think he and Cromwell still envisaged saving the greater monasteries as colleges of priests, uh, and did so in some cases, uh, that program largely disintegrated when the king said, right, I just want lots and lots of money. Uh, And then when Queen Mary had restored some monasteries in the um, mid-1550s, Elizabeth I inevitably dissolved them as part of a Protestant Reformation in 1559-60. Then a question from Google that does connect a little bit to what you've just been talking about. What was the financial impact of the English Reformation on the English monarchy? It could have been huge. Uh, because Henry VIII gained this fantastically large windfall in lands, estates, property, lead, bells, you name it. But he squandered it. Uh, He squandered it on the vast military expenditure of of the crown uh, defence against his many enemies abroad, most of which had been caused by his own stupidity and incompetence. Uh, And so if Thomas Cromwell had thought that he would give the king a permanent treasury uh, out of these church lands, it didn't happen. And they they were sold off to the English gentry and the English nobility pretty quickly. And it meant that the crown's uh, windfall by the end of the 16th century had virtually gone. Uh, So uh, the English monarchy didn't benefit as much. And and it's in dead financial trouble by the early 17th century. One more question on the dissolution. Thomas Smith on Twitter asked, what did the reformed monks do next? They did all sorts of things, depending on how old they were, their commitment to the monastic life. And and you could add friars to monks. They are the two different things, because friars before the Reformation had been the outgoing people, the preachers, hearing confessions among the people. Monks are people who theoretically ought to stay in their monasteries. So you've got two sorts of religious now looking for new functions. Friars very often turned into Protestant preachers because they're ideas men. And so they, they were captured by the ideas of the Reformation. So that's one reaction. Senior abbots uh, among the monasteries, well, largely, if they weren't executed, they were bought off with high office or extremely good pensions. 
So some of them became bishops, and by and large, not not very exciting bishops, good administrators, so which is what they'd been when they'd been abbots. Uh, and then the, the, there are those who were elderly, took the pension, and very often didn't live very long. The reason for, for life had gone. But the clever thing about Henry VIII's uh, dissolution was, I, I think this is Thomas Cromwell's cleverness, was that in the end, monks were given pensions. So money from the uh, monasteries which had been dissolved was put in a pot and they were paid pensions for life. So you could just sit on your pension as a monk, uh, and many did, particularly if they didn't like what was happening in the Protestant Reformation. They, they just sort of retire into an interior exile, living off the money. Uh, and the provision was that if you got an office in the church, uh, your pension would cease. Uh, so if you worked your way up into the Protestant church, well, that that's it, and you, you'd be given a different sort of salary. So there are all sorts of different end results. What's, I think, very interesting is how few of them tried to carry on the monastic life. Many, many more nuns did, and I think that's because they probably didn't have much alternative. Uh, so you've got, you've got some communities, particularly the, the great community of Zion, full of devout and often high-born ladies. Uh, the, the community of Zion actually stayed in existence in mainland Europe, came back in the French Revolution to the west of England, and, and lasted till more or less the present day. So I have lifted a glass of champagne with the last abbess of Zion uh, to toast the monastic life. And we had a question uh, that came in from Jeannie Massey on Twitter, and she asked... How swift was the transition from Latin to English in services and among church scholars? Well, among church scholars, first, Latin was the international language of scholarship. So nothing changed there. And that was true until the late 17th century. If you wanted to speak to academics anywhere in the rest of Europe, you spoke Latin. So no change there. In services, the change was pretty swift. There were experiments under Henry VIII with bits of the liturgy, particularly the processional called the litany, uh, which you, uh, there were special services, particularly when a war happened, you went in procession. And, and Archbishop Cramer drew up English services for that. He'd already in private been drawing up English services, which uh, in the reign of Edward VI were put into effect very quickly, very ruthlessly in 1549, uh, with big penalties attached. So overnight, you'd feel the change. In the reign of Mary, Latin brought back, of course, the old mass. But again, straight away with Elizabeth I, the Book of Common Prayer, basically Edward VI's second version of his Book of Common Prayer. That's put back. It's in English. Unless, interestingly, you're in Oxford and Cambridge, where you can use it in Latin, uh, Eton College. But otherwise, that English book is the basis of the Book of Common Prayer right up to the present day, still in use in, say, choral evensong. And we had a question that came in actually from a, a fellow historian and author, Leander Delisle, on Twitter. And she said, female imagery disappeared from churches. Who missed it? And how was this expressed? Thanks, Leander. I mean, that, that's a hugely interesting question to which there is no very good answer. Absolutely right. Female imagery disappeared from churches, the images of Our Lady, which were so important. They went. Who missed it? Huge numbers of people must have done. But we got very little 
uh, of their reactions. Uh, uh, Leander will know, and lots of people will know, those haunting poems about Walsingham, written in the reign of Elizabeth I and the loss of Walsingham Priory and the great shrine of Our Lady, but not much else. And that might be because Protestants are a bit sort of embarrassed about losing Our Lady. They wanted to get rid of the cult, obviously, and the statues had to go, but they couldn't get rid of her because she is the mother of Jesus. And if they did really sort of what you might say, slag her off, that would put them embarrassingly alongside very radical Christians, Anabaptists, for instance, who denied the humanity, the full humanity of Jesus alongside his divinity. And Mary is the guarantee of humanity. And reverence for Mary also ties the humanity into Christ's divinity. Uh, So that's a real problem for Protestants. And the answer is sort of embarrassed silence. It's very interesting how Mary is missing from Protestant culture in England. Think of the first Protestant carol, while shepherds watch their flocks by night, written in the 1690s and still sung. Now, where's Mary in that? And then you go on to that marvellous piece of Protestant music, Handel's Messiah. And, you know, this is about the birth of Christ, most of it. Where's Mary? Not there. So so there's a real problem for Protestants. But I think English culture simply went silent on her. We had a question that came from Mr Murphy on Twitter, who's looking at the Reformation beyond Henry VIII's reign. And he said, Peter Marshall described the changes under Edward VI as being the psychological end of the medieval period in England. Was this the biggest rupture? Was there another moment in the English Reformation that was bigger? I think that's a very good way of putting it. It is the biggest rupture. English services, deliberate destruction of beautiful things, the end of all the chantries, so purgatory went uh, in, in that sense, it's it's the, the revolutionary period of the English Reformation. Uh, it, it's very unlike Elizabeth's Reformation, which is, is deliberately not going any further and in some ways drawing back from Edward VI's Reformation. However, if you were to jump on and extend Reformation into the 17th century, then, of course, you look at the 1640s and 1650s where the the rupture was really great, uh, the destruction of church buildings, uh, church furnishings, as radical as that under Edward VI. But the interesting thing there is the reaction of 1660, which brought back Charles II, the Stuart monarch, but it also brought back a Church of England with cathedrals and bishops. People seemed desperately afraid of what had happened in the 1640s and 50s. And, uh, and and so they wanted the old Church of England back. They didn't quite get it because of all the bitterness of the 1640s and 50s. So the Church of England put back is uh, a, a much more hard-nosed, sort of, um, self-conscious, different form of Protestantism from anything else. So I, I'd look at both those periods, 1550s and 1650s. And this question follows on from that, really, and it's one from Google, which may in fact not really have a clear answer, but when did the English Reformation end? Ah, good question. I would put it at the end of the 17th century. And when I wrote a general account of the European Reformation uh, as a whole, 
my dates on that were 1480 to 1700, I think. Uh, and that's because after that, you realize you're in a different world. But the the impact of the destruction, the bitterness of the early Reformation, they didn't really work themselves out, the effects of that, until the end of the 17th century. Uh, and you could say that all the troubles of the Stuart monarchy, for instance, in the 17th century, are thanks to the Reformation or thanks to their positions in Protestantism, Catholicism, Roman Catholicism. So I'd be a long Reformation man. And within that, I'd talk about Reformations in the way that that great historian Christopher Haig talked about Reformations. I think that, that was a very useful idea. And now Claire on Twitter asked, how did the role of the church change for the laity after the Reformation? It became much more uniform. The Reformation wanted a church which covered everybody, just like the old church. But it gave them far fewer ways of approaching God than the old church had, because it got rid of the monastic life. Uh, It got rid of the guilds uh, which existed to pray for the souls of the dead, and that's a, a big expression of lay activism. And what are you left with? Well, you're left with, uh, apart from the cathedrals, to which I think no one went after the Reformation, apart from those involved in its worship. Apart from that, what have you got? The parish church. Those thousands and thousands of parish churches, that network covering the entire map of England and Wales. You go there on a Sunday and perhaps more frequently, and what you'd get would be the Book of Common Prayer. And mostly what you get out of the Book of Common Prayer would be morning prayer and evening prayer with very occasional holy communions. So the diet of religion was much more restricted, and that's the case right across Europe. Uh, And and what, what are you doing when you go to church apart from the BCP? Well, you're listening to sermons, you're singing hymns in Lutheran countries or metrical psalms in England and other Reformed Protestant countries. Uh, uh, and if you if you don't want that, you're, you're in trouble. And you could read all the explosions of emotion in 18th century religion as a reaction to the restrictions of the English Reformation. Methodism, you see, uh, it, it's presenting new ways, more varied ways of expressing emotion, a personal relationship with God, which the, the parish church diet didn't give you. So if your face fitted in the aftermath of the English Reformation, you're fine. But if there are needs beyond that, then big questions arise. And the Quakers are one end of the answer. Roman Catholic recusancy is the other end of the answer. But after that, it's John Wesley and Methodism. And you just alluded there to Catholicism. On the longer term consequences, Charlotte on Twitter wanted to know, When were Roman Catholic churches permitted again after the Reformation? Under James II, some were opened. Of course, there there were also embassies, foreign embassies, like the Sardinian embassy in London, which were, of course, tolerated for for diplomatic reasons. You you, you couldn't mess around with ambassadors. Henrietta Maria, Charles I's wife, had a private chapel. And all these are deeply offensive to Protestants. And as a result of that, when James II uh, left the throne, Roman Catholic chapels 
were very, very marginal. Gentry households would have them, and uh, tenants could slip into that. But really, it's the late 18th century when it was made reluctantly legal to build uh, Catholic chapels. They would have to be very discreet, and they could be the subject of mob violence. Uh, and, And so the first major buildings that we've got, apart from private chapels in gentry households, are from the very late 18th century. Why do you think it took so long before this was accepted again, nearly 300 years? Because the essence of English identity from the late 16th century to the 19th century is hating Roman Catholicism. It had become part of the the English way of life. It was encouraged by Queen Mary's folly in burning Protestants uh, and the way in which that was written up so brilliantly by John Fox in Acts and Monuments, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, The very real threat from Roman Catholic powers in Elizabeth's reign, from Catholic Spain and possibly France uh, later, uh, Louis XIV, huge threat to Protestant England and subverting the Stuart monarchy. So again and again, this idea of Catholicism being alien and a threat, and there's, there's Ireland, and the fact that Irish threats are Roman Catholic threats. Uh, in 1641, Catholics did massacre Protestants. The English hugely exaggerated those massacres, but they were real. So in all sorts of ways, it would be very easy to fear Catholics right up to the French Revolution, when suddenly Catholics were obviously victims. And you've got terrified monks and nuns finding refuge in England. And suddenly the English softened. Uh, It was the beginning of uh, a, a more balanced attitude to Roman Catholicism. Just one final question. How far do you think we are still living with the consequences of the Reformation today? We are very much in its slipstream. The United Kingdom was a Protestant project between the Kingdom of England and the Kingdom of Scotland, who pooled their mutual interests, partly against the existing Catholic threat of great powers in mainland Europe. And now we're in a situation where England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland have different views on the great issue of our time, how we relate to the European Union. And that's exposed the fact that that Protestant project of the United Kingdom doesn't have much pull now. Protestantism is a private occupation now. It is not a national identity. And in that sense, we are beginning to face up to the aftermath of the reformations in Scotland, England and Ireland. That was Dermot McCulloch. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in this series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. Our next episode will be out tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Emma Griffin about working class families in Victorian Britain. (laughs) 